Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Was it awesome? It was awesome, just like the song says. I have not seen it yet. I have to wait because I, had to, I don't want to see it without my chillins. And uh, I couldn't go see it. Uh, they were not. They were not available. Their scheduled dance cards were full. Well, I'll tell you something about that. You can easily go watch it because you'll want to go watch it again with them. Oh, all right. Yes. What if they want to go watch it again? Then you get to go see it a third time. <laughs> How lucky are you? <laughs> it, was it only that gets better. <laughs> good. Yes. All yes, right. It is. All right. What was what was so great about it? It's just, you know, it's it's fun storytelling. The 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 two filmmakers um who also did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and 21 Jump Street which was one of very, your big favorites of last year. Very strange t- track record. Yeah. But um they uh they have a great sense of comedy stylings. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, the two directors. They, uh, I don't know, I just think they did a really bang-up job making a really fun, funny movie. And, uh, yeah, I I liked it. Awesome. Quite a bit. Yeah. Everything is awesome. Who is I'm that? Looking... Tegan, Tegan and Sarah, I think, did that? Yeah. You don't yeah. know. You're no, I, I think that's right. I think you may be making that up. I saw that on Amazon. <laughs> I was going to download it. <laughs> Just so I can sing it all the time. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, it's awesome, Pete. It's, it's awesome. awesome. Uh, I, uh, alas, did nothing but thaw. Mm. I did thaw. The storm came, the storm went, and now it has moved on to other parts of the country. So whoever's dealing with it now, my apologies. It stinks. So yeah. I haven't actually seen anything, but we watched a lot of um, uh, Olympics. Mm. You know what? Uh, you know what? I noticed two things. I noticed about the Olympics. One, they're using drones to shoot it. <laughs> Is that fantastic? Have Gotta you seen it. this? The hexacopters. The hexa. I, I, yeah, I've I've had them on set. Do you? Are you? Uh, are you certified hexa pilot? No, but I've uh, but I play one on TV. <laughs> uh, so that's number one. Number two is the I I think, and I know it's always been kind of a thing, but this year the uh, absolute rabid fascination with slow motion. Have you noticed that? Mm, Everything no. is slow motion. Everything <laughs> is slow motion. <laughs> Everything's slow. It's it's getting a little bit out of control. It's it's like that doesn't there's no impact anymore. Just it's slow. Like it's just time. slow. It's just like yeah, exactly. Everything's bullet time. Everything's slow motion, and it's now getting to the point of being ridiculous. Yeah. 
Click. She's smiling. Make a slow motion smile. <laughs> uh. Uh, did they do any slow mo of Bob Costas's eyes? This is the next reel. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I'm Pete Wright. That there's Andy Nelson, and we Hi-ho. we spoil movies heavily, and weekly, weekly and heavily. <laughs> ah, take that! Uh, and uh, you can find us at thenextreel.com, where you can read the blog stylings of the goodly, kindly Steve Sarmento. You can catch up with all of our regular weekly shows on the Next Reel and the monthly new release episodes with the gang of thugs that is the Film Board. Uh, and uh, from there, you can find all of our associated uh, social uh, endeavors where you can friend us, follow us, like us, and generally join the conversation online. We would love to have you there. You can uh, also, the important part, since this is a movie show, if you want to see the movies that we have slated for our 2014 season, you can head over to letterboxd.com slash the next reel, and you can see our watch list over there. That includes every film we're going to talk about. Uh, for the remainder of this year. That's Some right. great, great movies on that list. Speaking of movies, mm-hmm. let's hear from Andy on the weekly challenge, Andy versus the People, the Instagram Pony Prize. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what I is, swear. What do you think it was this week? <laughs> what do you think it was this week that foiled you? You know, the people beat you roundly. I and I I really worked hard to pick something. I'm like, this is going to be something that I think will will trick people. I mean, I picked Jurassic Park three, and certainly <laughs> there's dinosaurs. There's a lot of things that are fairly obvious if I showed them. Uh-huh. So I tried going a few other directions with some of the more just apocalyptic, you know, wrecked vehicles, desolate landscape, yeah. uh, ruined buildings. And second image in, Hunt Thug Nasty comes out of nowhere, <laughs> nailing it. I'm like, what did you see in those two pictures that you were able to pull it out of your hat that it was Jurassic Park 3? <laughs> Not only that, and then he mentions in the uh, in the Instagram comments that it's a film that he absolutely hates. So it's I know, like, right? why, why do you even remember it then? <laughs> oh, my. So, yeah. Burned thoroughly into his trounced brain. this week. Thoroughly yeah. trounced. This is this was not good. I I I know you're I know you're feeling the heat for this coming week. Do you have something that's gonna that's gonna really test the I, people? I don't. Actually. No. I, I I'm going to as soon as we're done recording the show, I'm going to frantically scour just you know the online and just everywhere, try finding something that I can <laughs> fool the people with. Oh, people, you're giving it to Andy. Good. Yeah. They are, man. They sure <laughs> this are. is awesome. <laughs> uh, this yeah, laugh is good. it up, Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> uh, stay off my side, will you? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, you should still continue to play and continue to be added to our list of winners to win the Pony Prize this year. It's uh, going to be great. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Do, what else and- do we have to tell the people? Well, just in regard to that, you know, um, people who play that, people who leave us comments on iTunes, on Facebook, on all the different places where we are, 
we're going to be doing another listener's choice coming up in April, and we're you know, going to be pulling names into the hat of all the people who leave us comments or reviews or, or uh, notes, whatever, and we're going to put you all into the hat uh, sometime in uh, early April, I think, is when we're looking to do that. So, yeah, I think that's the next one. That's right. Make sure you uh, keep chatting with us wherever we are, and you will be entered for a possible chance to pick a movie for Pete and I to talk about toward the end of April. I'm going to go first. It is the film we have been waiting for since Prisoners. Have you been waiting for this since Prisoners? I, I, with bated breath. Now, what was the... Okay, so the film I'm talking about tonight is Denis Villeneuve's film uh, with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, and Jake Gyllenhaal. And Jake... <laughs> the, the two Jakes. Oh, Ah, and it's called Enemy. It is, uh, you know, we we talked about this that they were um, that um, these two gents really enjoyed working together, and uh, had two films in the uh, in the slow cooker, uh, and this is the other one. Uh, it is a really, I, I don't know. I think to me, it looks really interesting. Uh, written by Javier Goulon and Jose Saramango, uh, who wrote the novel, the, the original novel that the film is based on, it has something to do with Jake uh, seeing another one of himself. And so it's a it's a it's an identity film. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man seeks out his exact lookalike after spotting him in a movie. The trailer looks fantastic, very sort of art house creepy. Uh, I am uh, very much looking forward to it. I've really... Uh, I find myself growing fond of this uh, Jake uh, Gyllenhaal. Oh yeah, absolutely. He's quite a he's quite a talent, uh, and uh, Isabella Rossellini's in this film too. Enemy. Yeah, I haven't seen her in a while, and I've always loved her. So mm. Isabella and Melanie Laurent. Yep, yep. Looks like a good film. It's uh, it's in release, I think, limited here in February, but it uh, you'll be able to buy tickets for it yourselves probably March fourteenth. Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, me too. I'm going to check it out. I went the 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 kind of opposite of enemy <laughs> with my trailer this week. Uh, just complete whack. You're slumming out. it a little bit. I'm going to say with this. You know I am, but it's all in fun. It's the teaser trailer for the new uh, Ben Falcone movie, Tammy. What is up with this movie? <laughs> I just think it looks so wacky. I don't know really what to expect with this one, but the fact that it's basically the the teaser is Tammy, played by Melissa McCarthy, uh, going basically going into a restaurant with a paper bag over her head and a paper bag over her hand, supposedly holding a gun to rob the place. And it's just, you know, antics ensue, especially the the great bit with her trying to use the wooden spoon to lock the freezer door. It just goes on and on It is just fantastic. And it makes me laugh. And the fact that, okay, so she loses her job and learns that her husband's been unfaithful. She hits the road with her profane, hard-drinking mother, or hard-drinking grandmother, excuse me, played none other uh, by the lovely Susan Sarandon. (laughs) (laughs) that I think alone is why I wanted to talk about this one because the production still of the two of them just made me laugh so hard. So I, uh, 
I don't know if this is actually going to be good or not, but boy, did it make me laugh watching this trailer. And, you know, it's a, it's a July release, so it's right in the summer. I think they're finding uh, Melissa McCarthy summer comedies are a good way to make a little money, and it's good counter-programming to all the mega superhero, uh, you know, sequel comic book adaptation uh, prequels that are filling the theaters, so... Which franchise are you insulting with that line? <laughs> I was going for all of them. <laughs> um, I Okay, footnote on that comment. I want to wrap up Tammy. I think it looks fantastic, and uh, she's, uh, she's a goofball of the ages. She is, and it's, it'll be interesting to see uh, how this holds up, because it's the first f- film for Ben Falcone, who's her husband. And uh, she and Ben wrote this together. So this is really kind of a family effort to put this uh, film out. Would you call it a love child? Is it a love child? I, you may want to call it a love child, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it, yes, okay. So, that, yeah, it comes out in July. The teaser just, just made me laugh. Did, you so see, I, did, you, did we go through who else is in this film besides Susan Sarandon? Allison Janney, uh, Gary Cole... Mark Duplass, Kathy Bates, Dan Dan Aykroyd, Tony Collette, Nat Faxon. Yeah, they didn't hold back. Yeah, they did not hold back. That's nice. She's uh, man. She can she can pull a cast now, huh? Mm -hmm. Uh, Looks good. Yep, absolutely. All right. And now, our journey to the depths. There is no reason to be afraid. You will think you are alone. But you are not. It is cold, but you will be warm. Your depth is 10,000 feet. Bottom's about a mile and a half down. It is dark, but you will find light. You have to talk to me, bud, please. I need to know if you're okay. Understand everything. The abyss. So you know, I think we did something wrong, Pete. Why? When what we, we planned this, when we planned this series. Oh, uh, likely. What? What do you think we did wrong? Well, I'm sure if we pull it apart, we could find a lot. I, okay, so this this original sci-fi series that we're currently doing is three films yeah close encounters the abyss and inception yeah now one of these things is not like the other pete (laughs) or the two others i I, you know i i I feel like we looked at our series for 2014 and we're like yeah this looks good let's make sure there's nothing we can change that would make it better and i feel like it's like okay i love inception and i can't wait to talk about it next week yeah yeah but it's like we had this original sci-fi series with a benevolent alien twist going on. Yeah, and we didn't leverage films. that. It's like, how did we not change Inception out for, I don't know, like The Day the Earth Stood Still yeah. or something else? E.T. I mean, something with another nice little alien guy. Yeah. I know. Oh. I know. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. Are we going to change it? No. No. Because... I'll just, I'll just be crying on the inside next yes, week. Yes, as you should. And maybe yeah. a little on the outside. Maybe. Maybe. 
Um, we are, in fact, this week continuing our benevolent alien series. I, I mean, our original <laughs> sci-fi series with The Abyss, 1989, a James Cameron film, uh, which uh, chronicles his marriage to Gail Ann Hurd. <laughs> marriage and prompt divorce. <laughs> Yeah, Cameron uh, played I'm by so... Ed Harris <laughs> and Gail Ann Hurd played by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Their marriage set uh, miles beneath the sea. Titled probably much as they <laughs> would probably have described their marriage at the time. Surprisingly, the movie ends on a happy note. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there, this is it's another one of those films that has been talked about a lot. And so I... And, uh, you know, I just want to hear from you. How did it hold up? You know, this film, uh, there's, I think it holds up really well as far as what I want out of it. First of all, I think it's got some incredible, incredible scenes and sequences and set pieces. The The world that James Cameron created in this, it, it floors me every time when I watch this and think about how they actually built this entire set in two giant nuclear reactors that they filled with, I think, I don't know, it was like one of them was 7.5 million gallons of water, the other was 2.5 million gallons of water. They created this whole dark top to make it look like they were, you know, however, half mile under the ocean or under the surface of the ocean. And uh, just, and then the story with the aliens and everything, I, I mean, it, it really surprised me um, how much I kind of had forgotten about this. And I guess, you know, I watched the special edition, and which is essentially almost three hours long, and I, I, it surprised me that I had forgotten quite so much about it. Um, I hadn't seen it in a while. And how much I really loved it. And I latch on to so many key moments throughout it. But it also struck me this time um, how... Sometimes James Cameron's dialogue I, I have a really hard time with. And it, it I think this and Titanic may be the two most egregious examples of some dialogue that just really just hits me the wrong way. And it's like, oh, gosh, I'm sure there would have been a better way to write that scene. Uh, but But on the whole, I think it really holds up. And if not for that last sequence, the very last one, I think it would be something that I would call like aside from the dialogue it would be like a, a near perfect sci-fi film. I, I think you you set it up well uh, when you frame it as this is I, I get what I need out of this film right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm right with you and I I love this film um, I, I I really do. I The, the problem I think comes uh, well on the good stuff the universe I, I think is is beautiful and i i love what they did with the the space that they inhabit underneath and it, and even though they are you know at you know 1700 plus feet underwater um where we and it feels like you know it should be this expansive universe of kind of endless ocean it still feels very cramped inside and outside uh you know in the in the open ocean it still feels very dark and compressed and i i really love that that feeling i also love the feeling that it's a movie that even though it's a thriller and there are some action uh and sort of aggressively action oriented uh sequences um, it's not overtly violent, with the exception of one, um, you know, one fight 
right? I, I mean, they have the fight in the sub bay, but but otherwise, there's there's a lot of chasing. There is some some um, really intense and thrilling uh, sequences, but overall, it's uh, it it's it's much more a story about circumstance and not about horror beneath the sea. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Uh, which which goes sort of the other way on the continuum of, you know, kind of the abyss versus like sphere. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I can't even name the other ones. Uh, <laughs> like Leviathan. Le- Leviathan. That's <laughs> the one I was thinking of. Leviathan, which, you know, it's like, hey, we saw the abyss and now we're going to make it more better. Uh, um, so, <laughs> or not. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and so I, I love that about it. Um, and so generally I find, uh, the, the action sequences are impeccably well paced, even in the, the director's edition, which I, which is the version I think both of us watched the, the recut, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, even in this two hours and 44 minute, uh, release, I found the the pacing of the major sequences, uh, w- really kept my attention riveted even as many times as i've seen this film watching it i i you know i i didn't want to stop you know i i found myself really still as engaged as i was the first time i saw it in the theater yeah um i you know i found myself more sensitive to i don't it, it wasn't really the dialogue stuff um it was the way you know and cameron i this is it's a, a stylistic thing at this point i think the way he wears his messages on his sleeve. Yeah, and that was something else I was going to bring up, but yeah, certainly. It's it's pretty. I, I mean, it's... Obvious? It, yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> non-subtle. Uh, <laughs> you know, the... the uh, I think just generally the, the, um, uh, the forced intensity between the military and uh, civilians, the, um, you know, there there is no... Uh, allusion to the aliens uh, you know mission the aliens message it's translated very very clearly at the end in this in this re-release it it is interesting though because the only this is the only version i've watched since i saw it in you know in the theater i mean i think this was the version i picked up um you know the two vhs release years ago um and so i don't remember the differences in the original release but in reading about it uh, I I am am gathering that there was no wave at all. Yeah, I actually rewatched the end of the the DVD. This for some reason has never been given a Blu-ray release, so it's only the special edition DVD that came out uh, a little while back. But that edition does have both versions on it. So I just to refresh my memory, I rewatched the end once Bud is on the uh, alien spaceship underwater and they kind of start communicating with him through messages. The way that that happens, he looks up and he sees the aliens and he turns around or they kind of that, you know, the, the TV fuzz begins behind him. He turns around and it's the message from him saying, I knew this was a one way trip. Um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, somebody had to do it. I had to come or something like that. Whatever that message is, love you, wife, that whole thing. He turns around and looks at the aliens. They nod at him and leave. And then that's that. Then the rest of the end is the same. They cut out the entire message about the, you know, people being um, always going to war, destroying each other, all of that kind of heavy handed message about kind of the Russian. This came out the same year that 
the Soviet Union kind of collapsed and everything. So it, it, I don't know. I feel like it may have been just like a little bit too late for the message as far as, you know, the, the Ruskies versus the, the U.S. and all that. But that's essentially kind of the story that's going on. Everyone's kind of blaming each other as to this nuclear submarine that crashed in the uh, in the tread the Cayman Trent the Cayman Trough, and um, so when when the news comes on, it's all these stories about you know U.S. and Russian forces getting getting you know starting to attack each other or whatever's going on, and then the aliens bring up these giant tidal waves, and uh, yeah, I think that's the version that's essentially been around since about '92 when he released that. And I actually got to see that version in the theater. They, re- they had it play in the movie theater for like a weekend, and I went and watched it, which is pretty spectacular, seeing those giant, you know, mega tsunamis on the, on the big screen, which is fun. Right. But I had forgotten how much of that was added. And for some reason, I thought there was some news clips, but just not the, the tidal waves. But really, it, there was nothing. It just was basically... He went down. It, I guess what it did, and I think a lot of people complained at the time about how what was the whole point of the aliens? They save him just because he sacrificed himself. Yeah. And in a way, it it kept it kind of a much more personal story of the aliens saving him because he he did this to save his friends, um, and it kind of removed a lot of the stuff going on with the Russians, and you didn't have that whole political global tension going on on the surface, but. It it made the alien part of the story, it kind of diminished that a little bit, where it's like, okay, so why are they using this as an excuse to all of a sudden raise their ship out of the water and save everybody and, and announce to the world, hey, here we are. Yeah. It, it it did. I, I guess I didn't think about it at the time. I, I was at an age where I was just mesmerized by the film, and I didn't really care about that sort of stuff. Looking back at it now, it's like, gosh, that really is kind of an odd way to end it. Now that he has all this in, I do think it's a much stronger end to the film. It makes more sense. The aliens acknowledge, you know, you people are destroying yourselves. We're going to destroy you or at least threaten to destroy you uh, unless you guys can find a way to settle down. And the fact that you have shown that people do have a side, a good side, and they can settle down and they can be good and they can sacrifice to save others it's going to, you know, that's that's good enough for us to at least save you right now. So they, you know, bring the tidal waves back down. They then they raise the ship up, and I don't know. I I like it. I I do think it's very heavy-handed. I, I but I think it is a much stronger ending with all of that in there. Well, I and that's the that's the challenge I think of this of this cut because. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it works in the service of the story. It makes the yeah. end make sense, right. and the at what cost? Uh, at a cost of being so heavy-handed at the end that it it's it almost uh, cancels out any of the benefit that you get from it. Uh, and, and this was the thing I found interesting uh, that uh, you know, in a quote from uh, uh, from Cameron. Uh, who says that uh, you know that he actually uh, liked the uh the cut his his quote here and i'm getting this from you know right on wikipedia so you can find it the sense of something being missing on aliens was greater for me than on the abyss uh where the film just got consistently better as the cut got along the film must function as a dramatic organic whole when i cut the film together things that read well on paper uh, on a conceptual level didn't necessarily translate to the screen as well i felt i was losing something by breaking my focus breaking the story's focus and coming off the main characters was a far greater detriment to the film than what 
what was gained. The film keeps the same message intact at a thematic level, not a really overt level by working in a symbolic way. I find that interesting, uh, mostly because I think what he is saying there is not what he did. I think it's the opposite, right? I think by putting all that stuff back, he actually... By putting all that stuff back, he actually allowed us to see more of the 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 characters and their relationship to the world, and uh, you know, so I you know I feel like it just it was it just ended up kind of a mess. I I don't know if I'd say it's a mess. I mean, I do think it's there. I can see what he's saying. I I, I can see that. Like I said, I I do feel like there's something in there about the message with Bud and everything. I yeah. I think all of that works. The only thing I think that just doesn't work is the very end when the aliens raise their ship up. But, I, I mean, I can buy into the fact that we're going to save you because you sacrificed yourself without going into all the political uh, mess that comes up uh, with the tidal wave. It's, it's just the fact that they reveal themselves. And, and I only have a problem with that in the tidal wave version in, the, in this, in this uh, director's cut. Because I just, I've always had a problem with the way the ship looks when it comes out of the water. Yeah, yeah it, it, you know, it, it really looks, works underwater. It is so gorgeous yeah. underwater. It's like one of the most, you know, beautiful, just like we were talking about with Close Encounters last week, the way that they play with darkness and light and the darkness where you don't really see the ship so much as you do all the lights on it that kind of illuminate the shape. That's how these all work. And the aliens themselves are kind of like these jellyfish full of lights and they're gorgeous. And when it comes out of the water, it's just like, you know, look at my giant, you know, porcelain purple, you know, shower head. Yeah. what it looks like, you know, yeah. it's, it's art deco. And I, I just, don't... thank goodness we have all these utilitarian vents. Yeah. It's, I, I, yeah, it's, the, the part I always struggle with with the film, I mean, by that point in the film, when I'm really watching the movie, I don't care that much. And I honestly, I don't care that much about the, the heavy-handed political messaging and all that. Exactly. Because by that point, I am so invested with Bud and Lindsay and these people stuck at the bottom of the ocean that it... it yeah, I, I acknowledge that the heavy-handedness is there. I acknowledge that the, the alien ship is going to rise up and I'm going to find it ugly again. But at the same time, I am so invested with those two characters. By the time they reunite on, on the surface there, I am right there with them and I'm thrilled. Looking at it on, at a more critical level, which is what we're doing, though, is, you know, it, it is really just, it is very apparent that it's so heavy-handed and it's just a great big ugly purple thing coming out of the yeah, water. yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the military. Okay. Uh, James Cameron in the military. Right. So this whole <laughs> thing is built, this whole film is built on this premise of a of a nuclear submarine that uh, chases a shiny object right into the side of an underwater mountain. I don't know if I'd say it chases it. <laughs> Ooh, shiny. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I that's what I saw. The first five minutes is a submarine getting distracted and running into the side of a mountain. <laughs> and uh so so they've got these nuclear weapons, what is it, a hundred and eighty some odd, hundred and ninety some odd nuclear warheads on this thing. And so uh and and so the premise of the of the film is that um in instead of 
you know, bringing in another uh, submersible, that uh, military top secret submersible. They're just going to use this mining rig and move it uh, so that it's in range of this ship or this submarine, and they're going to go find it. And um, so I, I had trouble this time understanding the chain of, well, maybe I, I should say, it's not that I necessarily had trouble, because like you said, when I'm really watching the movie, I'm I'm okay with this kind of stuff washing over me a little bit. But this time around, I found myself actually thinking about what they did and what they ordered the the military to do um, in in this case, mm-hmm. which is to send some seals down uh, to really force feed us the uh, uh, you know the nervous syndrome, uh, high pressure nervous syndrome uh, message, right? Uh, by not only making get, chewing us out about it, uh, giving us some nice exposition in the in the compression chamber, but then, you know, giving the high pressure nervous system to the head of the SEAL team, right? To yeah. Michael Bean. And and so we get, we just really are spoon fed that. But then we have this, this set of events where we have a nuclear device and I don't understand why we need it. Uh, I, I think it goes back to your question of maybe the message is not in tune with our, um, political uh you know where we were politically when the movie came out like we'd sort of moved maybe we're sort of moving past this i don't know uh but it this is an area that doesn't hold up uh where the the you know military uh superior whatever his name says okay i want you to go get of the 190 some odd uh warheads i want you to go just get one of them and then arm it uh mm-hmm. but I, i'm we don't need to talk about why right it was I, I have no uh that that was the first time I, I watched this and thought I think he may have written himself into a hole where he fell in love a little bit with the message and needed the devices to deliver the message. Right? Well I, I've never really had problem understanding it. Maybe I may I don't I can't now that I've watched all three hours of it again, I'm trying to remember if I'm reading into it or if it was there and uh, and you know you might have just missed something i can't remember but i i've always kind of thought okay so i mean this trench the uh the cayman trough is not that far from cuba right it's real close to cuba and so the fact that a nuclear sub gets uh you know crashes into something they see something and they crash and sink in the cayman trough right off of Cuba. It's not a great place for a U.S. nuclear sub to crash. And they think that the Russians had something to do with it. The Russians think that the U.S. is doing something nuclear in their water. So it's creating global tension on the surface. And so our guys are going down there because they think the Russians are going down there to try stealing the nuclear warheads. And these guys, in the interim with the SEAL team, until I'm I'm guessing later, and maybe this is where I'm speculating, at some point they're going to actually send, now that they know where it is, they're going to send a real team down there to actually retrieve all the rest of the nuclear warheads. But what I've always kind of thought is they're arming one nuclear warhead so they have something to kind of defend it with if the Russians come, so that they can say, don't come near, we've got an armed nuclear warhead here. Maybe I'm reading into it, but that's that was always my impression as to why they're doing this. I mean, it... 
it doesn't make that much sense. I mean, what are they going to do? You know, all blow up underwater with this nuclear warhead? I mean, it, you know, it doesn't make that much sense when you think about it. That's but... the point. And how are they going to deliver it into this armed warhead? They're just, they really were sent down there as a suicide mission? If something well, goes wrong, yeah. the Russians get too close, just blow up everybody. Exactly. Exactly. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying it's not ridiculous, but that's that I'm, I'm saying I it's just, you know, I don't know. It's that military mindset. It doesn't make that much sense. But that's what I've always kind of read it as. And, you know, I, I buy into the, the awkwardness of it. Well, I OK, so I it's just like trying to get unobtainium. Under a tree. <laughs> That's exactly the point, I think. That is exactly is. the point. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, okay. So uh, then, you know, there, the, the, at, at some point, well, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to save this point for later. I don't want to belabor it yet. I, I, I feel like there are, the, these are the other points that I, that I found myself really perseverating on, right? Which is where um, this, you know, they put this, <laughs> This incredibly, incredibly future, uh, like advanced bit of technology, right? This incredibly spacious, giant uh, oil rig underwater, mm. um, and they gave them only one uh, submarine that has the right fork on the end of its arm to be able to unplug the the umbilical hose to the surface in case of emergency. <laughs> like there's no magic button or like a no emergency release button. There's nothing like that. Like they didn't think about that. You're overthink. You're, you know, you're putting yourself into a world where you're you're thinking outside of the world that they've given us. I, I am, and I I think I am. I I recognize that. I recognize that. But this is the problem I get into when I sit down to write screenplays. <laughs> it's that <laughs> I I I. And and you should correct me on this, right? If you have the magic correction button, I would like to to see it. I would like you to push <laughs> it upon me, uh, which is, you know, when you are uh, presenting a a world that is rooted in uh, science fiction. I'm going to call it like uh, uh, what is this? Maybe it's a new thing. This sort of what is it called? This science fiction accuracy, right? This is perspective fiction. Right. Yeah. Uh, where we or have science, science speculation, I guess. Science, like, science speculation. Like what Spielberg talked about on the last one. Right. Right. No. Okay. So when you're rooting in that world and you're asking us to have faith in this future technology, don't you have some responsibility to to make sure that you have uh, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's on the stuff that isn't speculative? I don't know. I don't think so. It's like it's like people who get up in arms about about gravity because you know people were saying oh gravity is it's so founded in the realities of space you know the way that the sound travels the way that they portray the accuracy of what the astronauts are doing all this stuff and then people get up in arms saying oh yeah those people are just a bunch of jokers here they are trying to be all accurate about how astronauts really do all this stuff, but then they have them, you know, zipping from from space space dock to space dock, uh, you know, across the the, the uh, atmosphere, and it's completely ridiculous. And this movie's just a pile of junk because don't these people know what science is? And, you know, you're you're telling a story, and I think there's a level in all of these stories where 
there's going to be some stuff that you sign off on and some stuff that you don't. And there's always going to be an audience that is going, it's, it's like watching a movie. It's like watching bullet. If you have driven the streets of San Francisco and you, you watch the, the, the great, great car chase in that film and you're looking at it going, this doesn't make any sense. That's not where that street goes. If they turned left on that street, they would have ended up over here. I mean, you can do that until the cows come home with movie after movie after movie. The idea of being put into a world is once you're in that world, what they're portraying in that world is, you know, for all intents and purposes, that's the reality within the world of the story they're telling. If this story is a story where they don't have that magic push button in the, uh, in the giant oil rig to release the umbilical, then they don't have it. And the only way to do it is the one uh, arm on the, on the submarine. And, uh, you know, I, it's one of those things. I mean, sometimes it's going to feel deus ex machina when it's not done very well. I'd like to think for the most part it's going to feel effective in a good story, um, even if it doesn't make that much sense when you kind of step back and look at it. It's like people complaining about cars. And I don't like the cars or cars too that much. But some people just go off on the fact that, well, how do these, how are their little lightning bug cars? How do these make sense? How did they build this building if they're cars and they don't have hands? <laughs> Who cares? I it's cannot a believe you are comparing cars <laughs> to the abyss. I, know, I honestly, that is here. not, that is a straw man I will not accept. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I know. I'm. I'm just saying. It's, it's like people who complained about Looney Tunes. I mean, <laughs> rabbits don't talk. <laughs> My point exactly. Oh uh, no, but that's. But that's the thing. Is like, I don't know. I. I think it gets to a point where yes, you could also complain. Well, why is he turning that that you know bolt left? If you look at the design of that, that clearly is one where the bolts are designed to be turned to the right. Yeah, I don't know. It gets to a point where it's ridiculous, and I, you know. <laughs> well, clearly you're you're incensed about the whole issue, and I understand that. I because you're right, I, and I should I should. But what I think what this is is uh, what this shows for me is that the film, in many respects, even though even as I remember it as a film that really stands up and it's just beautiful, and you know what, that is the that is still the truth about this film as I watched it uh, this week is that it absolutely holds up in uh, pacing and intensity, even at the longer, almost three hour mark. Uh, I found myself really interested in this film and thinking about it at a level that caused me to think about the faults. Um, but I'm thinking about them more critically about how, you know, how did, did Cameron get himself into this place of, of not finishing uh, I think some, of these more foundational arguments that would have made, for me, the story of the nuclear warhead make more sense. Uh, and instead, we have more attention paid on some of the back-end kind of um, uh, spiritual, uh, philosophical elements of the film, uh, that uh, of the story that, that I think maybe, um, you know, took us to a place that exposed a giant porcelain toilet. <laughs> showerhead, man. showerhead, and at at the expense of maybe some of these foundational elements that just caused the overall story to be weaker for me. Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely recognize what you're talking about, though. No, and and even as you chew me out, <laughs> just watch Cars again. No, <laughs> <laughs> I it's it is. I mean, 
yeah, there's always going to be those problems with the story. And it, it's just one of those, I don't know, it's in a way, the the nuclear warhead is the MacGuffin. You know, it's, I mean, it's really, does it matter that much what's going on with it? I mean, I guess to some extent, as long as the tension is being created, you know, because of the fact that this submarine crashed in the first place, you know, it's not a huge problem in the story as long as we know that there's tension because of it well and, and yeah and to your point i mean and to to counter my own um they need the military to be or in, in order for cameron's universe to make sense at the end they need the military to be idiots yeah and and that's why we need you know coffee to fall apart and we need his boss to be you know a tool mm-hmm. um, i i get that i absolutely get that yeah all right let's talk about some people I have to say, watching this movie, like, I completely fell in love with Mary Elizabeth Master, Master Antonio. I really was mesmerized by her strength as a character, which made me think about just James Cameron and his great female characters, period. I really enjoy, uh, you know, Ripley and, uh, and in Terminator, Sarah Connor. You know, the, he has some really strong female characters. And even Rose in Titanic. I, I, I really like the way that he writes his, his female characters and the strength that he gives them. And I think Mary Elizabeth, Elizabeth, if I can't even say her name, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, um, she just has this, this commanding presence in this film. And I love the, the bite that she has. And I love the relationship between her and Ed Harris. I think it's such a strong foundation in this film that you know it starts off with them basically you know you find out that they're married and they're kind of nearing divorce and the way that that moves back into a love story and right up to that uh, second uh, or the right at the top of the second hour in the film when you know their sub is crashed and they go through the whole process of her uh, dying basically in order to get out of there and then but having to save her I was just so wrapped up into that that whole moment and the, the, the power that those two actors have through that scene, it's so intense. And I can only imagine um, <laughs> the literal torture that uh, Mary and Ed went through in the process of making this film. But I think that their two performances hold this film together like glue. I could not agree more. And I think that's one of the reasons the universe really, uh, you know really holds together uh, because of the strength of those two um, characters, those two actors. Um, She was fantastic. I mean, she's just stunning uh, in in this film. And, and, you know, I thought she was great in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. (laughs) 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 Uh, But she, uh, you know, she really just dominates when she is on screen. Um, And and this is, you know, I talked about how this isn't just a horror movie, a horror trope. It's it, it, it is really I think it is such a a quintessential thriller. Uh, you know, when we get to this sequence where they have to make the choice uh, and you have to watch her die. I mean, I remember seeing that in oh. the film, like it was seared to my brain. Uh, it, it was unbelievable to me that they would that, that that would be allowed to be shown. It was so intense on screen. Yeah. 
to watch her drown. Uh, and, and, uh, and then the converse, in fact, you know, after they, they bring her back and his, uh, you know, his, in the intensity of his performance in resuscitating her and, and, uh, uh, but then to be rewarded by having to drown himself, right. In, in this own sort of figurative, uh, right. or, um, you know, less final, uh, version of, of that, you know, having to, to suck down the suit water, um, it is. Uh, it's a wonderful kind of sequence. As you watch them uh, both be sort of uh, baptized, you know, um, kind of through death and back again. It's yeah. It's so intense, and the making of this film was uh, really, really difficult on the actors. And it was chronicled in a great documentary that you know, for some reason, I I guess the fact that they. Um, Put the um, the two versions of the film on the uh, the DVD. They did not put this documentary on it. And there was a day I had the laser disc, which was fantastic, and it had this amazing documentary called "Under Pressure: Making the Abyss" that goes into the trials and tribulations of getting this movie made, which were quite quite difficult. I mean, Ed Harris nearly drowned at one point because his the guy off off set set underwater set couldn't get he he got tangled up and couldn't get his breathing mask over to him and then somebody gave him one finally but it was upside down so he was sucking water and finally the cameraman gave it to him and so so he nearly drowned Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio she had to hold her water that scene when Bud is dragging her back to the rig you know he's really carrying her underwater and she's holding her breath uh, that whole scene and then when he's reviving her she's you know she was so cold and and she, he was slapping her and just all this stuff and and James Cameron was just I, I guess he was getting you know frustrated with the actors and and somebody I don't know if it's Mary but somebody wanted to go to the bathroom and he's just like oh just go in your suit it'll save time and she got up and screamed at him you know this we're not animals and uh and walked <laughs> off the set and I you know I I mean, obviously came back to finish it, but yeah, he, you know, James Cameron is a uh, hard on his actors as has been told many a time. And, um, I, I don't know. And obviously he was going through a divorce with Gail and Hurd over the process of making this film. And, uh, I don't know if some of his, his own demons came out when he was dealing with the actors, but somehow I think he got great performances out of Ed and Mary. Ed, to this day, will not talk about the making of this film. He will not talk about it. And Mary says there are a lot of things about Titanic, or Titanic, about the abyss. Um, fun making it was not something that I could say about it or something like that. So they completely had no fun making this film. But somehow they translated the torture of making this film into two really amazing performances. They did. Uh, it, it was absolutely riveting. I would I would add there is a playlist on YouTube from the uh, uh, industrious Paul Osargi, which I will link in the show notes to all six parts of the making of the the abyss under pressure. Fantastic. Yeah. So I put that in the notes. Uh, so check it out, and Good. then you can see about the whole bathroom problem on set. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, I feel like we've been sort of, I don't know, I've been poking at, at James Cameron through my discussion of his, uh, 
uh, of the construction of the story, but what do we have to say about him specifically? And uh... I think that he is an amazing director. He may not be the best writer. I will say that about a good number of his films. I think he has a very... Uh, his his dialogue ends up feeling very heavy-handed. Some of his themes come across very heavy-handed. What he does well in writing his scripts is he understands the construction of a script. He understands the way that a story needs to focus on its transitions from one scene to the next and how you build that to create that tension over the course of a story. And I think he's done that really well in all of his films, including this one, which a lot of people, I know a lot of uh, critics when it came out kind of thought it was just dull and they wished that something more interesting would happen. I still really liked this when it came out. I think I was young enough maybe to just really get into it. But I, I think he knows how to put a solid story together and he clearly knows how to direct a great story. Aside from all of that, James Cameron has always been somebody who is so motivated to push technology to the limits. Um, clearly, Avatar showed us that with all the amazing 3D and motion capture work that he did in that. But in this film, his, his clear passion for working underwater came through. Just the fact that he built the set underwater. He had all the actors working in the water, underwater. They were all trained divers for this film. They were actually, you know, they were underwater filming for such a, a large amount of time that when they would, were done at the end of the day, they would have to you know, decompress before they could come out. He designed the little Mervs. Like he and his brother Mike um, actually came up with the design for, I can't remember, one of those two little you know, submersible robots that they had. They designed those. They designed the new face masks for these divers so that they could actually have speakers in them and talk. And they wouldn't have the bubbles coming up in the front because he wanted to be able to hear the actors when they were talking. So they actually designed new helmets for the actors. Um, they Just all of the different submarine sort of technology and stuff. And clearly that passion has come through later in his life as he's ended up making a number of underwater documentaries. Obviously Titanic showed some of his passion for that and uh, the the Titanic documentaries he's done and then, not only that, but in last or no, in 2012, so about two years ago, he invented this new underwater submersible that he took to the bottom of the ocean. He went into two trenches, I think, in 2012. One was off of the coast of, uh, I think it was England. The New Britain Trench is where it was, actually. And then the other one was the Challenger. Uh, no, the Challenger Deep was the, the deepest part of the Mariana Trench. And he went down there for three hours and explored down there. And he's the first person to do that by himself. And he's the first person to do it since, uh, I don't know, sometime in the 50s or something like that. I, I think um, it had been a very long time. Yeah, 1960 was the last time that anybody had been down there. So clearly his passion for the underwater technology, I, I think influenced the making of this film and I think in a way also was birthed by the making of this film. So just using that technology, I think finding even to the point of filming underwater and how at certain distance from, from what your subject was, how the blue of being underwater would affect the lighting that you were going to need in order to see something. So they, just figuring out the compensation for all that so they could 
light everything properly. I mean, it's it's an amazing amount of technology that he worked on to make this film uh, even exist. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that was really good. Was, did you like that practice was, that? I, that was... I, I feel like it. You know, it's like it was like a you know a translation of a, a, a an old one of those old translations of a kung fu movie where my mouth moved <laughs> for like you know a full minute. And you had the one word, yes. That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, this, for me, the the uh, the real magic of it, I, I think, you, you know, you're, man, obviously he is um, he is quite passionate about this, um, you know, about his work there and his about the science and particularly the sea. Uh, you know, for me, the the real magic is just the commitment to the underwater sequences uh, and and the incredible tanks uh, that they use to film this thing. These uh, 7.5 million gallon tanks that are 209 feet long. Uh, you know, at the time, the the largest tank in the world. Uh, it, it was it was it was filmed in a reactor, right? Yeah. Uh, in South Carolina, um, it is stunning to to see just how much, uh, just the size of the commitment that you have to make to make the this film look as authentic as they did. Uh, and I think that's uh, it. It really shows, and that's a that's a piece of it absolutely that holds up. And and it was a piece that surprised me uh, that it holds up quite as well as it does. The the mechanics of being underwater, with the exception of, and and I think this is to your points about him, um, you know, and the work he's done underwater. So I've watched a lot of the videos of him, you know, that that he shot of him scooting around underwater, you know, some years later, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, twenty years later, he's scooting around underwater in his in his submersible, and he's scooting along. You know, not real fast, and yet somehow, twenty <laughs> year old submersibles in the abyss are like fighter jets. <laughs> that was one. That, that was one. I think I just feel like that was another one that maybe I know. I know I'm giving up the world a little bit, but. Because that was an incredibly intense action sequence that I really like, but it's one yeah. that I thought about. Um, anyhow, so the the commitment to underwater, I think most for the most part, really works well and and holds up over the years. And I it was, uh, um, it, it's it's work of our time. Yeah, absolutely. So, I also I also found the liquid breathing element that he tied in really fascinating. Um, no, Ed Harris did not really do the liquid breathing but the rat really did yeah. they actually used five different rats and all of them um, did breathe this liquid uh, breathing fluid whatever it is and um, and it, it's pretty amazing stuff I, I don't think they've actually tried it with people uh, but it is something that is out there this whole kind of a, a liquid that you can breathe that's full of you know heavy oxygen for you to I, I don't even know how it works but the idea of it I find very fascinating. And the fact that he brought that into the story to, you know, as this, you know, secret military stuff, whatever it is, so that they could go down there. I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So that might be a little bit more of that science speculation. I like that quite a bit. Well, it is. And, and you know, I became uh, super obsessed by that, uh, by the liquid breathing. 
Really? Yeah, and and you know it's a it's a fascinating technology, and I'm going to absolutely butcher it. I'm sure. So somebody's going to write in who is a a pilot and tell me where I'm wrong. But uh, <laughs> my understanding is that it, you know it, it's being used not just uh, underwater because of the theoretical uh, at this point theoretical benefits of deep diving um, using a liquid breathing apparatus, but also in the air uh, because uh, you know for pilots who um, you know if you if you uh, the theoretical benefits of the pilots breathing liquid, uh, you know, versus a gas, um, you know, and being surrounded by this, it's called the libel, I think the libel suit, um, which is a, a new form of G suit that surrounds you completely in water, uh, absolutely distributes G forces and, you know, pressure, um, and can, uh, keep pilots conscious and, lucid able to to fly uh at extremely high g forces uh because all the pressure is equally uh distributed hmm. throughout their system uh and so this is one of the things that they're looking at at doing and you know I, to my knowledge there is a, a scientist who claims he has done it um but i i couldn't find any confirmation <laughs> or, or reproduction of that um, but the animals have done it. And in fact, there's a great History Channel documentary um, that uh, I can dig up. I'm sure it's on YouTube where actually it, it's, it, it shows them going through the process of, of using mice, not rats. But, you know, it's a documentary that actually documents them doing this process that you can find online. Uh, wow. It's fascinating. That's cool. So that part. So here I'm supposed to, you know, I buy into this, but there's no <laughs> button to release the umbilical. I tell you, you're a picky man. Bridge too far, Andrew. <laughs> uh, who else do we want to talk about? Well, Michael Bean. I, I always love Michael Bean. And, I, I mean, he clearly is a little over the top as the the mean military man. This is definitely not something where he's given a lot of... Uh, uh, He's not painted as a full character, you could say. He's painted very one-sided, and he plays that well. And uh, I, I, you know, I think Michael Bean is somebody that uh, I think works really well in the sorts of movies that he's in. And I always, always enjoy watching him, even when it's a movie that I think is not one of the greatest. But you know, this is—it's a very over-the-top military performance, and I like him in it. It is. He's brooding and shaky, and still, uh, he was a uh, he was a solid antagonist. I found it interesting to learn that the studio actually really, really pushed to try to get him nominated for best supporting actor this year. It didn't strike me as a performance. I would say, oh, best supporting actor material. Yeah, no, it did not. But they did. They tried. Yeah. The winner that year, of course, was Denzel Washington in Glory. So Michael Bean, Denzel Washington. Yeah, that's pretty much where I would have gone. It's a, it's a tough choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Michael Bean, um, this was full of, I, you know, I really loved the, um, you know, the, the oil workers, the rig workers. Yeah, they're they're it's it, it was a group of fantastic people who they cast to really be 
real people that worked really well in the context of this underwater oil rig. And they actually, I think, rarely even had these guys use stunt doubles. These guys, like when the when the thing was flooding and all that, I mean, these actors had to train to, to be, aside from diving, they had to, you know, train to have rooms flooded and get thrown around. And so they did all their own stunts. And it's pretty impressive. I, I really enjoy everything that went on in, in the course of, you know, just the world of these people underwater with Jammer and Cat and Hippie and One Night. I just loved them all. It's a great group. It feels like oil workers. Yeah, no, it really does. Um, uh, they, you know, it's funny that we talk about the the uh, the the lines, right? The, um, you know, that sometimes the Cameron scripts don't don't hold up. But I think the uh, the this is one of the really quotable films. Yeah. Uh, there is between, especially on on the rig. You know, I mean, there. This is one of those films that the that that you know some of these he just hits those one liners right home. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that I I I had forgotten where some of my good lines come from, and they were from this movie. Oh. <laughs> uh... <laughs> My wife is always disappointed when I when she she watches a movie with me and realizes that oh that's where that line came yeah. from. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I know. She's you know, probably slowly should, probably shouldn't have married her then, huh? <laughs> oh, slamming! Look at that! The Look abyss that. quote, right? <laughs> what? I don't mean that, of course. Nice. I think everything's it, a conspiracy. That's because everything is. <laughs> See what we did there? Ah, <laughs> uh, good. It's good. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, Hippie is, uh, is one of my very favorite characters, uh, in the film and, uh, played by the, uh, hysterically, uh, funny Todd Graff. He's great in this. I really always great. have loved Hippie. Hippie and the Rat. And, uh, let's see, anybody else uh, you want to mention by name? Um, the, uh, the only one that, uh, I'm going to mention is, uh, aside from all the great people, but, um... James Cameron's brother, Mike Cameron, actually does make an appearance in this as the dead sailor in the submarine that has a crab crawling out of his mouth. <laughs> that is his brother. So That's even his brother, he tortures. That's go, go, good okay, one. You're going to go crawl under that machinery, hold your breath. We're going to put a crab in your mouth yeah. and film it crawl out. Go. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> so gross. And we're gonna have to do it again, and again. That's worst worst words uh, ever to be heard from James Cameron. Uh, I so how are we, do you do you have anything else you want to talk about before we talk about money? Well, I think we we should mention oh, we got to talk about the pseudopod. Yeah, I was gonna say we got to talk about the 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 visual effects. Yeah, uh, yeah, aside yeah. from all the wonderful underwater Practical stuff. effects. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, this was this was a big deal. Um, this this for the pseudopod is seventy five seconds uh, of film, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, this was they were they were going to do what were they going to do cell effects they were going to just hand draw it, uh, but ended up doing uh, for the first first uh, significant uh, application of CG. Yep, uh, was the uh, the water finger. They actually filmed that scene first, 
so that those people had as much time as possible to work on it because he was afraid. That, and he, he wrote that all of the stuff with the pseudopod so that if it didn't work, he could cut it out and you wouldn't be any the wiser. Very smart. Yeah, that's very plan. smart. That's very smart. On the off chance that your whole story was based around it, then you're really screwed if it, yeah. didn't, if it looked like, you know, some, you know, something from Who Framed Roger Rabbit popping out of the water. But it looks really good. They did a great <laughs> Please, job. With it. Eddie. <laughs> and they and uh, Hoyt Yeatman, Dennis Murin, who we talked about last week, John Bruno and Dennis Skotak won Oscars for best visual effects for the amazing work they did with this. The the pseudopod. Uh, this was really kind of this groundbreaking technology that uh, James Cameron really worked hard to kind of get them to perfect that cold moving liquid that he then went on to use to great effect in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, I think this comes back into play uh, in the end, right? Because originally the wave, one of the reasons he didn't like the wave was that it was not CG and that they had gotten uh, half a million dollars from the studio for the re-release and recommissioned ILM to do the wave using CG. Yeah, I think that it was uh, kind of left incomplete, and he didn't. He was very unhappy with how it was all coming together. Yeah. So, yeah, moving water, moving liquid. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? Seventy-five seconds. But it, it, but it, you know when you think about it, it is the signature piece of this film. Besides her dying and drowning, it, it's the signature piece of the film that that. Uh, that I think people remember. Absolutely. It sells the film. Mm-hmm. It really does. Although I do always, when it comes in, I mean, all I could think about this time watching it was Prometheus. Just imagine yourself waking up and there's this giant water tentacle in your room and they're looking at it. And then, and then Bud goes, it likes you. It's like, how do you know? It's a giant <laughs> tentacle sticking into the room, and now you're going to touch it and make faces at it and stuff. I mean, all you know, you're going to touch That's it. Right. Your skin is going to dissolve and fall off. I mean, it's just, what are these? Oh, you're going to stick your finger in it and then put it in your mouth. <laughs> I just all I kept thinking was Prometheus with those two guys. Oh, look at the cute little thing, and then I know. You, you know, it's just like, oh, which brings me back to Mom and Dad save the world and. The crazy mushroom creatures. You know, it's just full circle. I just, I, I keep pulling yeah. things out of my hat. Cars. Not, not good. It's not good. Uh. <laughs> that's not good. What is happening? What is happening? Uh, yeah, no, that was a, that's a signature piece. We like that. Dennis Murin, again, has been on all the greats. He has. Yeah. And, and the last thing that I want to talk about before I jump into numbers is the score, which I love. I think it's a, a gorgeous, gorgeous score. It's some beautiful choral work, especially toward the end. Uh, Alan Silvestri did the score for this, and uh, it wasn't one of, I, I think this was might have been, um, since it was after Aliens, and I think uh, James Horner and James Cameron had a little tiff after that one. There was kind of a, a timeout between the two of them. And so Alan Silvestri came in and jumped onto this one, and I think he did a magnificent score. I've always loved it. And uh, there actually is a, like a deluxe edition that is uh, just came out actually last month. So um, we'll put a link in the show notes for that one because it's uh, definitely a score that um, has some great powerful moments, great, great chase music in it. Uh, I think it's just a solid score from beginning to end. You, you may be surprised to hear this. I totally agree with you. 
Wow, I was totally waiting to say, yeah, it had that one good theme at the end. The rest, I forgot. I didn't even like any of it. God, you are <laughs> really something. That was my best Pete impression. That was, that was me? <laughs> I sound like a dip. <laughs> why, why would... That's horrible. I'm sorry. It's, uh, <laughs> that's my inner self speaking to me. Speaking... <laughs> That's my therapy voice. <laughs> uh, I want to use my little talking beaver puppet. <laughs> I, t- <laughs> I totally agree with you. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and this is one that I actually can really listen to. It's, yeah, it, it's, it, it it's really beautiful. is a fantastic, fantastic score. Uh, okay, so let's talk about some numbers. Yeah. This film didn't do that well. <laughs> I mean, it made money. It did make money. Um, I shouldn't I shouldn't just poo-poo it right out the gate. But it was supposed to be about a $40, $45 million film when he started. And after all the divorce proceedings finished, <laughs> it ended up being <laughs> $70 million. So, yes, it was uh, – it, it definitely – the budget certainly skyrocketed. And at the time, it was a, it was a really high budget. For 1989 – um, it was rare for budgets to get this high, and it was rare for films that were nearly three hours in length to be released because people thought it would be a flop, which is I, another reason that I heard why uh, 20th Century Fox wanted him to cut it back. Um, so anyway, $70 million to make it, and that's just the production. I couldn't find anything on uh, prints and advertising. The film ended up uh, making domestically, let's see, about $54.5 million. Uh, and internationally about 35.5 million. So all told it made about 90 million, 1989 dollars. So today's dollars that means it made about 100 and almost 170 million dollars. And it did so it did it did make a little bit of profit, not a ton, but about 20 million dollars. And so, you know, it it's not at the top of our list, but you know, it's number 66 out of uh out of all of our films on our uh, on our list of movies that we've that we've did that, su- did that surprise you? I had forgotten for some reason because I liked the film. Yeah, I think I assumed it did better. I didn't realize that it was one of James Cameron's worst performing films. That that's exactly my sense. I I that really surprises me to hear you say that. Yeah, uh, uh, that it didn't make a lot of money. I thought it was a very successful film yeah. because it was in my head. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, let's do our, uh, cinematic duty and rank it. Let's do it. If you head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, you'll find our stack rankings of all of our favorite films, all the films we've talked about on the show. And, uh, you should, uh, like us over there and share your thoughts, share your rankings with us. Absolutely. Here yeah. we go. The Abyss or Gattaca? Hmm. I'm doing, I'm doing The Abyss. Gattaca is a really unique sci-fi film, but just for the scope of yeah. what he pulled off, it has yeah. to be the abyss. The abyss, the abyss, or the outlaw Josie Wales. I'd still go the abyss. Yeah, yeah. Even as much as as much as I have trouble with sequences in the abyss, with with elements of the abyss, not sequences of the abyss. The overall joy I get from watching the abyss uh, is strong. Yes, the abyss or I know where this one's going. All the President's Men. All the President's Men. <laughs> the Abyss or About a Boy. I'm interested to hear where you land on this. The Abyss. Me too. 
I love about a boy, but uh, I don't know. You know, I'm a sci-fi guy. Mm-hmm. The Abyss or The World's End? I'm going to say The Abyss, but I'm going to be thinking about that one. I'm going to say The Abyss, too. And again, it just boils down to scope for me. Yep. I mean, you know, it's a pretty ambitious film. The Abyss or Being There? The Abyss. Yep. The Abyss or... Oh, here we go. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Even with its issues, I'm still going to go with The Abyss. Really? The thing about The Abyss is it came out at a time when I was at an, uh, the perfect age to watch it. Yeah, me, oh, no, no doubt. Me too. So, I, And I love Close Encounters. Do you think it's anything definitely... that may... Do you think that at all this could be affected by the fact that you watched like 15 hours of Close Encounters of the, <laughs> of the third time in three days? No, nothing. No, I, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> I'll join you on The Abyss. All right. But uh, I feel there, a little yeah. dirty about it. Uh, you know, it's... Yeah. All right. Who knows what I'd say tomorrow. All right, there we are. Number 16 out of 119. That actually feels pretty good. Yeah, I think all so. Right think so well done andrew where are we going next week we we talked we mentioned this in the beginning didn't we already yeah we're um we're messing up our benevolent alien original sci-fi series that we should have planned and instead we're jumping over to christopher nolan's dream world of inception i'm really looking forward to watching this movie i am too even though there's no benevolent aliens i'm going to look really hard to find one i'm just going to call leo my benevolent alien (laughs) is that your new name for Mm -hmm. him Maybe Leo. his top is his <laughs> alien. Benevolent alien DiCaprio. <laughs> oh, well, he did call uh, Philomena Philomania. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that next week. We did postpone, for those of you who tuned in last weekend, to check out our film board review of The Monuments Men because I was frozen in and couldn't get to a theater. I couldn't actually see it on opening weekend. So we're going to talk about it this weekend. Yes. Uh, so we're a week late. but um, Coming soon. Coming soon. Yes. I think that's it. Anything else for the people? Uh, I don't think so. I think, I think we've given the people everything that they need, really. You, you should give the people what they need this week. I can't wait to see what you, what you dose out. <laughs> for Andy versus the people, the Pony Prize Challenge. I can't either. It better be good. <laughs> Until then, <laughs> I gotta go to bed. You you do. You're looking a little ratty. <laughs> <laughs> ratty? Ratty Atui? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, derailed. Clearly. Yeah. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>